0: Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve.
1: came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA.
0: Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. And freedom will be defended. For several years, Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu led the Counterterrorism Coordination Committee. A committee which has responsibility for devising and driving national counterterrorism and domestic extremism strategic policy. The Counter-terrorism Coordination Committee's members include senior officers, senior representatives of government departments, and other agencies, including the security services. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Neil talks us through this time in his career as the chair of this committee. The pressures associated with leading such a response and why he still spends every day thinking of the people that have been affected as a direct result of terror-related incidents across the UK. Next, on Protect and Serve. In August 2012, we'll just move on a little bit. um, Tia Sharp, a a young 12-year-old girl, was tragically murdered in South London. And you were appointed goal commander to lead on what was a very high profile case, which resulted in intense media and public scrutiny. So what can you tell me
1: about the murder of Tia Sharps, Joe?
0: He told them nothing. Well, you must listen, please. On trial he claimed she died after falling down the stairs, until today, when his legal team asked for the charge of murder to be put to him again. He paused and then said guilty. Now, we won't go into details in terms of the murder itself, as it was notably incredibly confronting. But as the gold commander, what were the resilience challenges you faced leading such an investigation?
1: Well, you you hit the nail on the head with it being community and press, because, of course, the homicide team were dealing with the homicide. Uh, It's worth understanding what happened. So, um, without dealing with the details of the case... The first call I got was a Saturday night outside of restaurants. I think it was either Friday or Saturday. My family's in the restaurant. I get called out of the restaurant. It's my boss on the phone saying, could you just speak to the borough commanders? But I was commander on call for London. Um, but I also happened to be South East London commander in my day job, as well as on call commander for London. So, and clearly this had happened in between Merton and Croydon. She'd gone from Merton to stay with family in Croydon. And she was a high-risk missing person, and my boss had been in that day um, for some reason. I, I can't think which, but he'd been briefed on this just before he left home, for home, and rang me up and said, would you mind just taking a look at it, because I'm not not entirely convinced everything is happening that should be happening. Well, I, I was on the phone for maybe 60 seconds to the borough commander who was trying to describe to me um, why they had done everything, you know, why it wasn't their job to deal with it. It was, you know, it was Croydon's job to deal with it. It wasn't his fault. I and mean, when I said, call out the murder squad uh, and I'll remember that to this day, because it was kind of, they weren't even thinking in those terms. They were thinking she's a, you know, a, a classic runaway who run away all the time. That just wasn't the case. She was a, she was a proper high risk missing person who who we were approaching the 24 hour limit where, you know, Something's happened, and they hadn't contacted anybody uh, in specialist crime to help them deal with it. And uh, it, it may not have been 60 seconds, but it was within a few minutes of listening to this, you know, this gabbling nonsense where I thought, you've messed this up. So from that moment on, um, you know, I remember my family finishing their meal and coming home with the doggy back while I was still standing outside a restaurant in the street in my local town, giving directions about calling you know, what had to happen and appointing a silver. And part of that was obviously appointing a search team to try and find her um, you know, in her last known seed locations. And that is that case is famous because the specialist search team failed to find her in the house. So we could never have, um, we could never have saved her. She'd already been murdered, but we could have found her in time for her family to at least be able to see her and say goodbye to her. And I, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was go in front of the press and apologise for not finding her in time. And that was a massive lesson in resilience. But the second one was the community where, you know, we had a manhunt. They had a paedophile murderer on the loose. It was a very small estate. Community tensions were incredibly high. Politicians were incredibly nervous, up to and including the Prime Minister. Uh, The Commissioner was being, you know, personally... Uh, called by very senior people. Almost every senior officer in the Met was involved in discussing what on earth to do next. Uh, My job was to shield the senior investigating officer and I had lots of experience as a senior investigating officer so I knew how difficult it was going to be for that person. Um, You know we had to try and keep the focus on keeping the community calm, keeping the press informed, um, making sure that we said our apologies and Chief officers become experts in the art of apology because you never wield, you never wheeled out in front of the yard for anything good. You're only there for when things have gone bad. Um, so it taught me a lot about personal resilience at that level, which I hadn't had to deal with as an SI. And mostly I've been in front of the media doing witness appeals or talking about a result of the old daily. You know, it, it hadn't been, you know, people looking at you like you're incompetent or corrupt or, you know, dishonest or You know, you haven't had that kind of... And you can see journalists looking at you going, you know, you've messed this up personally. And I'm a very reflective person. You know, the first thing that happens when anything goes wrong is I look in the mirror and say, what was my part in that? Uh, And that can be terribly debilitating if you're not careful. Um, So, you know, it it was one of the... So I call these moments crucible moments as opposed to the touchstone moments we discussed earlier. Uh, These are the things that teach you how to be a leader, how to be... um, how to stand up to the pressure of
0: the job it's and and all these experiences eventually led to you in 2015 when you uh you became deputy assistant commissioner and you served in specialist operations and during your time there uniquely held the roles of daxo and snc and then were later promoted to become assistant commissioner of specialist operations now there'll be quite a number of listeners who won't know what daxo and the snc is um in those six years, we'll, we'll talk about those those particular roles, but in those six years alone, uh, in terms of counter-terrorism work, your teams alongside the UK security services disrupted 29 terrorism plots, responded to 12 terrorist attacks across the United Kingdom and arrested and charged and convicted over 600 terrorists. Tell us about your experience leading in such a pivotal role in British policing.
1: Well, I'm I'm incredibly proud of the fact that I've held the three most senior roles in counterterrorism over that six years. The only serving police officer ever to have done that. The only police officer ever to have done that. Um, And of course, I had lots of different roles, the the protect and prepare side of it. So the uniform side of it, the armed side of it, trying to make sure that VIPs are protected, Parliament's protected, airports are protected. Uh, and then the SNC role dealing with the investigations. And it, it's—I always try and think about the fact that we were successful. You know, 29 plots disrupted, 600 people convicted of terrorist offences. And um, the brilliant Lord Andrew Parker, who was head of MI5 when I was doing those jobs, um, and the current head of MI5, Kevin Callum, was my counterpart uh, in the SNC. We—we we, we're a team. When I say we, it isn't counterterrorism policing; it's counterterrorism policing. The UK intelligence community led for domestic security by MI5 and the government led by the Office of Security and Counterterrorism, as it was known then, Homeland Security now. We are 18, the three of us, and it's impossible to do those jobs without a very strong relationship and bond between the three of us. But none of us talk about the 29 plots we foiled and the 600 people we convicted. We only think about the ones that got through. And that's the reality. You know, So uh, it's... The, well, the pressure is it's immense, but I I'd sort of describe it as um, I always think about the job description of the SNC, where you are the operational lead for investigations and for disrupting plots. So when the threat gets so high, you have to intervene. It is the SNC who makes the decision about when to arrest, how to arrest, where to arrest, Uh, And those decisions are enormous, you know, the pressure at that moment. They're they're done through a meeting called the Executive Liaison Group to effectively chair a meeting of all those professionals in a room uh, with everyone who could possibly help bring this to a successful conclusion. And I, I did that as my predecessors and my successors have done many times, dozens and dozens of times to get the right result. And the pressure of that's immense. And what you think... The job description of SNC goes to four pages, and I always distill it into one line. It's basically work with MI5 and stop terrorist attacks. And when five of them get through in 2017 and in my career, 12 get through, on my watch, 42 people died. Hundreds of people were physically and mentally scarred. And I think about that every day. And I I wrote it in my statement for the Manchester Public Inquiry. My lawyer said, you can't write that. And I said, why not? And she said, well, that's not true, is it? You don't think about it every day. And I do.
0: Am I right in saying that shortly after taking up the SNC role, we obviously became victims to the Novichok Salisbury incident?
1: Well, that was actually right at the end of my tenure as SNC. So we were literally just recovering from the worst year of our... And by by the way, don't listen to me. Listen to Lord Parker Mm. uh, made a public statement about how difficult um, that time was. Bear in mind, he spent 35 years in MI5. And he said, um, you know, that time was the worst he had seen in counter-terrorism in his 35 years in MI5. So that's the pressure we were under. Mm. 2017, the final attack at Parsons Green, where thankfully and mercifully nobody was killed, but very easily could have been the death of 80 people plus in that carriage. We were just recovering from that. We'd been tasked by the government of what went wrong, why did the attacks get through, you have to break the momentum You have to do something, you know, and we were busy not only kicking a lot of doors of suspected terrorists in uh, and disrupting a lot of radicalizers, we were in the process of investigating ourselves and inspecting ourselves. We came up with 104. I chaired that that group uh, alongside one of my counterparts at MI5 and we came up with 100 plus ways to be better. That's a really humbling moment. You know, you go around the world saying you're world class and then you find 100 ways you can be better. And people will remember, because David Anderson was the person the um, the Home Secretary put in charge of checking our homework, checking that we were doing it properly. And people call it the Anderson Report. But David would say, hugely respected person, would say it wasn't his report. He was commenting on what we had done. Yeah. So And do, don't underestimate the emotional physical effort of inspecting yourself whilst you're going through threats. I describe it to... The Home Affairs Select Committee to so Yvette Cooper has trying to fine-tune a Formula One car while it's racing around the track, still setting lap records. It's really tough. So we that's what we were doing at the time. And just as we were beginning to stop the boiling frogs and think, actually, we've broken the momentum, it's stabilising. It's very high, the threat level, but it's stabilising. Salisbury happened. And it was four days into that. I was actually... With Andrew Parker, Cressida Dick, and Ken McCullum, we were in front of the Intelligence Security Committee for two days, non-stop, ten hours worth of evidence describing what had happened and why in 2017, of which I can't go into, but they did publish an unredacted public report. Uh, and I, for those first two days of Salisbury, I was the SNC sitting in that meeting alongside my bosses and my counterpart Ken whilst Dean Hayden stepped up to my role and was dealing as SNC with that inquiry with my deputy, Terry Nicholson. And uh, I came back to the office on the Wednesday, had a briefing. On Thursday, I gave Mark Rowley's retirement speech in the fifth floor of the yard. And halfway through the speech, I get dragged out by Dean Hayden to a briefing on Salisbury. And that was the start of the Salisbury poisoning.
0: The two individuals named by the police and CPS are officers from the Russian Military Intelligence Service.
1: Today's announcement marks the most significant development in this investigation. We now have sufficient evidence to bring charges in relation to the attack on Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury. Within days, the scientists have a result. Sergei and Yulia Skripal have been poisoned by Novichok, a military-grade nerve agent invented and manufactured by the Soviet Union. Where we realised the true extent of what had happened you know a weapon of mass destruction the first chemical attack on british soil or any european soil since world war ii um still to this day the largest counter-terrorism investigation in history and we've you know effectively in their absence charged three members uh, of the russian military with those that murder of dawn sturgis and the attempted murder of two of their own citizens. And I, uh, I'm i incredibly proud of the relationship between ourselves and the UK intelligence community and the, the grit, determination, sheer skill that was involved in that job. It was quite remarkable. and Particularly the frontline responders on the ground who were dealing with something that they couldn't see, um, but they knew could kill them instantly. I mean, the forensic retrieval uh, is something I've never seen, I hope I never see again. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, The bravery of, you know, the young detective sergeant who sadly has been medically retired because of what happened. But his instincts, his professionalism, his detective skill, his courage, which highlighted exactly what was going wrong, which almost cost him his life, was incredible. As you know, these two people remain critically ill in hospital. Sadly, in addition, a police officer, who was one of the first to attend the scene and respond to the incident, is now also in a serious condition in hospital. And dealing with everyone from them to sitting opposite the Prime Minister and National Security Council and briefing her and her team on the job was... I can't quite believe that PC Basu from Battersea in 1992 had ended up in that seat. I remember... Um, You're not allowed to talk about things that happen in National Security Council, but this is hardly a state secret. But my first day, I deputised once for Mark Rowley in that meeting. But she opened the meeting with Welcome Meal. Congratulations on being appointed AXO. It's your first National Security Council as AXO. Would you like to open the meeting and tell us what's going on in Salisbury?
0: That's a big moment. You know,
1: How do you react to that moment? I'm sitting with the heads of the intelligence agencies and the Director General of the National Crime Agency and I'm being asked to open the meeting and I just thought um, you have to pinch yourself in moments like that uh, and remember that you're an ordinary person doing an extraordinary job. You,
0: you, we've mentioned 2017 a couple of times because it was a very difficult year for Britain with several terrorist plots uncovered and sadly terrorist, sta- terrorist attacks being carried out. Are you able to talk us through times where counterterrorism policing during this period was successful in averting tragedy? Well, if I was
1: being glib, Oliver, and with your history, you'd know I'd say no because I, I certainly don't want to tell you how we follow the plot
0: no, no I wouldn't expect you to the, the,
1: the, job, the job is about intelligence gathering so everything you could possibly imagine and have ever seen on television in terms of trying to gather intelligence on a plot that is unfolding we do mm. so there's a brilliant book by another great hero of mine called David Oman called Principled Spying so when we put and um, I was the policing lead uh, who Help put the Investigatory Powers Act in place, which is the legal underpinning of the kind of work we do to foil plots. Uh, it is the piece of legislation that determines what covert policing we can do in this country and how. Uh, and that is incredibly important because if you want to trust your policing and your security services with your privacy, uh, the level of intrusion we go to in order to keep you safe is very high. So it has to be ethical, has to be proportional, has to be lawful, must be within the law uh, and must be effective. And the skill of the people who gather that intelligence, whether through physical, technical or virtual means, is extraordinary. And that is what gives us the ability to foil those 29 plots. Now, I say that, but what also helps us foil plots was brilliantly alert detective work and the help of the public, particularly family members. So the way the typology of terrorism changed you basically, you didn't have very highly trained foreign fighters directed from abroad working in cells as almost like small criminal syndicates um, who were well planned, well prepared and certainly had the intent and capability to commit terrorist attacks. Over the years, it morphed to people who were inspired by watching some propaganda online who would just pick up a knife or drive a car into a crowd. We've all seen this happen. We know. Trying to spot those people using traditional national security techniques is quite hard. Yeah. You're more likely to find it because a family member says something's going wrong here, or a doctor, or a teacher, or a social worker, or a member of the family says, do you know what, um, he, and it's 86% he, he has changed. Yeah. So, uh, and that, you know, that behavioural, that phone call into either MI5 or to counterterrorism policing using the hotline or into Crime Stoppers or even stopping a local community cop and saying something doesn't feel quite right is incredibly important. And that has helped us foil more than one plot. The other thing is, is our own ability to triage what we think is threat. When you think how much threat is out there, we can't possibly put all of our resources on every threat. You have to determine which ones are likely to become real or not. Uh, And the expertise of a lot of our frontline professionals who are examining that intelligence, trying to join it up, trying to make a determination that this is a real plot, uh, is phenomenal, you know. And they don't always get that right because they're human beings. And there is no machine or AI way of doing it. You have to have eyes on uh, and make a decision. And that decision is largely based on fragments of intelligence. It's like an incomplete jigsaw. And when you see something, it's the job of the place when that threat is escalating, that SNC job that I did to determine whether or not when and where to intervene. You go too early, you don't get a prosecution, you've got a very dangerous person out there who now knows we're after you. Yeah. You go too late and somebody's dead. You know, so you that decision point is pivotal, and you can only do it with the skill of the intelligence gatherer. And we've had we've had moments probably one of the most famous recent moments was 2019 where a terrorist is on streatham high road who grabs a knife from a, from literally from a newsstand and then starts stabbing members of the public now he was shot dead within 30 seconds and the reason he was shot dead within 30 seconds is of course we were there just moments after undercover officers have
0: shot a convicted terrorist who stabbed a man and a woman on streatham high road
1: Reinforcements arrive. The area is flooded with police.
0: I hear free shot, and I see him how he dropped, and he was alive for good two, three minutes on the floor. But he had vest. this where police tell everybody we have to move back in case if the blast go off. Following him
1: as he headed towards Streatham High Road a surveillance team of nine officers on foot, in cars and on a motorbike. Authorities were convinced the young extremist posed a very significant threat to the public. And we were there because we knew he was highly dangerous. And he still managed to wound and traumatise three people. So, you know, those kind of fine margins about who is and who is not a risk are incredibly difficult. And we have not always got that judgement right as a collective. Uh, and we have to accept that that will happen. No government, no security service, no police force can guarantee you that these things will not happen. It would be foolish to do so. But, you know, put it like this, we will use every technique in our power and within the law and within the realms of proportionate Policing in a Western liberal democracy to try and keep you safe.
0: You, you talked about the, uh, you know, the collection of digital and almost that online world that exists. You know, terrorist groups recruit through social media and they use these platforms to disseminate propaganda. Do you think social media companies are doing enough to prevent radicalization and the abuse of their platforms? Could they do more?
1: They could definitely do more. I mean, I would say it's changed dramatically over the last two or three years. You won't find anyone talking about. Social media not having to take more responsibility about these things. The two things are generally speaking about content and encrypted communications. So, the content they spent years saying they couldn't do anything about it, which um, I, you know, both myself and Mark Rowley really thought was nonsense. Mark used to go out to the press regularly and sort of give them a slating, and I would get a phone call from my counterparts uh, on both sides of the table saying, "Could you go a bit easier? Because we do actually need them as well." I mean, social media can be a tremendous force for good in my world. You know, I mean, they can really help. But a lot of them were set up as um, they're all state side registered. Were, a lot of them are set up not to help the state, you know, to put privacy before security. Now, you know, all of this. Um, your listeners might not realize that they're set up with a kind of helping the government do things is not what they're about. What they are about is making a lot of money. So these days, only they have the money and the resources and the intellectual horsepower to solve this problem of massive amounts of content, which is incredibly difficult to take down because you can just change the code slightly and replicate it a billion times around the world. So trying to intervene in this, the, the utopia for me is you see it being uploaded and you stop it being uploaded so it never gets uploaded. You know, you could. Have a machine that did that, that would be happy days. We wouldn't have any of this stuff. There isn't a media company out there that wants criminal content on their site because the reputational damage for the company is too great. Mm -hmm. The big argument is the stuff that is not yet criminal, that breaches all of their terms and conditions. Will you do more about that, please? And some of them have, you know. And the other thing is society is going to have to have a conversation about what hateful, you know, what is grossly offensive and not criminal, and therefore we have to debate and we have to allow it through free speech to be there. And what is so offensive, that it is actually in a grey area between the criminal space, but is fomenting violence. Uh, And a great woman called Sarah Khan did a piece of work with Mark Rowley called Hateful Extremism, which is still with the government, still waiting for the government to review it. But they should look at her definition of hateful extremism, which currently is outside of the law it needs to be codified within the law so people like me and my counterterrorism colleagues can take action uh, and that space currently is not regulated online social media companies in liberal democracies all around the world are looking at legislation to make social media do more about this that will come into place the online harms bill is the example here in the uk the uk were leaders in developing this but it it is very hard yards in the that has to happen so they can do more, they are starting to do more, they are recognizing they have a corporate reputation at stake, um, they will do more in the future, I'm absolutely positive. The next debate is end-to-end encryption. So end-to-end encryption is a way of maintaining your privacy as a citizen, maintaining your security against fraud. And as police officers, we want both of those things. You know, We don't want people to be able to hack you, see your stuff, Uh, and abuse that to commit crime and launder millions. The trouble is, if law enforcement can't see the content either, that's a massive problem. You're basically giving carte blanche to terrorists, serious criminals, thieves, et cetera, et cetera. We can't have that. And and I dislike the argument we are somehow trying to break your code or create a backdoor into your code that will make your, um, your product less secure and less safe. We're asking for a completely open front door where I have to go through a judge to get that material. That's what I want. You know, I, I don't want some kind of clandestine relationship. I want an open relationship whereby I can get access to that content. If you build a business model where I can't get access to any of that content because you don't have it, because you have immediately deleted it or you've never captured it, that is a disaster for law enforcement. And I've made that point very forcefully and very publicly and very privately, many many times, as have lots of my colleagues.
0: I, I I volunteer for a police welfare group here in the UK called Trojan Wellbeing. It's a group which is led by a former firearms officer. If I think you know, we both know, Steve Thornton, Lobby Thornton.
1: We were police constables together in Battersea many years ago. Give him my best.
0: You know that group provides a support mechanism for police officers right up and down the country who are either struggling with their own mental health or just need a colleague to talk to every that they may have attended. As we've talked about, we're all extraordinary people doing an extraordinary job who have either done or are still doing what I've often described on this podcast as the extraordinary work. What What are the skills and techniques that you have employed to manage your own welfare in positions which have come with a great deal of pressure like that as assistant commissioner, species operations? As you say, you're only willed out of Scotland Yard to give often quite bleak, challenging and saddening news. What What, what did you what techniques did you employ to be able to cope with those huge issues that you've had to deal with over your career
1: um do you want the uplifting answer or the truth so the the truth is most people who um you have to have something in your personality to cope with that kind of pressure and not all of us have it so i think i cope with it at the time but if i was honest you know i stood down on the 4th of July, 2021, from that role. And I described that as my very own Independence Day for any US listeners. Um, I was on call 24-7, 365 days a year for seven years. So I slept with my phone next to my head for seven years when I slept. I I wear a Fitbit. So I kind of know what my sleep pattern was like for the years I was in counterterrorism. It was appalling. It was between four and six hours a night. None of it restful. Um, I know in the year that I've not been doing that job, my sleep has almost got back to normal. That that is, I know because people tell everyone who's done my job, Mark included, bless you, Mark, if you're listening, um, he looked a million dollars six weeks after standing down from this job because it, it prematurely ages you. And the trouble is, it is like boiling frog syndrome. and We're all the same because we're trained to do this. So we get very excited by it. So one of the first ways of coping, is be very good at your job, be very experienced and be very well trained. If you have those things, then you've got half a chance. If you then have agency over yourself so uh, and you have good resources, and agency, by that I mean, do I have the ability to determine my own path in my job? Am I well-resourced? Do I have the money, the equipment and the people I need to be successful? If you have all of that, that really helps you. The thing that helped me most was I hired brilliant people who were better than me, who knew what they were doing. That really helps you sleep. And if you're the kind of leader who only surround yourself with yes people who'll do what you say, or they're your friends, even though they're quite mediocre, you're an idiot. You know, put people around you who know how to do their job. And when the crisis happens, you don't have to tell them. You know, they know what they're doing and you can concentrate on the value you can add. So I did that. I talk When I talk about leadership to people, I talk about family, friends and fitness. Those things are important. You have to be able to talk about these things. You have to have an outlet. You have to have a sense of normality and a normal life to go back to. A friend of mine once described policing as like leaving the house and going to a different planet every day and then coming home. And the adrenaline rush of the job means it's hard to calm down when you get home. And it's very hard on the people around you, particularly if they're not actually in law enforcement. It's quite damaging for them. So you have to surround yourself with family friends who understand and be willing to talk about it i've worked with hundreds of people who've never taken their job back i've never understood how they could do that i've lived my job 24 7 for 30 years it's probably not a great coping mechanism but i've had to be able to talk to people about it at times when it was too stressful and the fitness thing is really important you know the coping mechanisms when i joined the job were drinking and smoking please don't do that as a coping mechanism for stress It's a very bad idea. Uh, And I'm pleased to say I am as fit as I was when I was 18, but it's taken me the last two years to get back there because I neglected all of these things, family, friends and fitness. Don't neglect them, it's important. And the only other thing I would say that enables you to cope is, and this for me is really important, is the sense of mission. So purpose for me has been, I have lovely great quotes that I use when I talk about leadership, but, you know, Mark Twain's, there are only two important you know times in your life, the time you're born and the time you find out why. Well, I definitely found out why when I became a police officer. Um, but the greatest quote I've ever heard was Mahatma Gandhi saying, there is no higher calling than to lose yourself in the service of others. If you remember that that's what you're doing, then that helps get you through really tough times. And then when it all stops, go and do something fun and recover because if you can't do that that's a massive problem
0: you uh, you've been described i asked some former colleagues I've, i i've asked people to describe you in a few words and i started at the beginning with a few of those but you've, been, you've been described by former colleagues that i've asked as a clear communicator as resilient approachable sincere and one of the best to have been led by and a police officer of the utmost integrity who stands up for what he believes and supports his officers these are all incredible qualities of which I have no doubt you and your family would be very proud to hear by current and former officers. As you approach the end of your chapter in policing, what advice would you give to aspiring young officers who seek to help and guide the Met into the decades ahead? And what has served you so well throughout your career to reach the success you have within one of the most, if not the most recognisable policing brands in the world? I guess the first piece
1: of advice I'd give them is if in 30 years' time you're on a podcast make sure your interviewer has a list of all your best friends to speak to. Because that's quite an extraordinary list of, um, yeah, I'm blushing furiously. <laughs> so um, that's a very nice thing for people to say. I mean, I guess, you know, join for the right reasons. So be, be honest while you're here. You know, if it's for medals, um, then you're in the wrong place. If it's for thanks, medals, or thinking you're going to change the world or make utopia, you're going to suffer. If it's because you want to help people um, at the worst time of their lives and make your community safer, and you know that that happens one day at a time and one victim at a time, and that you will make a significant difference, then you've joined the right job. Congratulations! And it will also be exciting. It will also be secure. It will also be, uh, you know, a wonderful experience for you. Be honest. You know, there is, you can't be a police officer unless you're honest. And if you're not honest with yourself, it's not just about honesty in terms of criminal corruption that's about being honest with yourself about why you're here and why you're doing what you're doing because you are given extraordinary powers over other human beings so you better understand what kind of human being you are and you better respect other human beings whatever they look like whoever they pray to whatever their gender is whatever their sexuality is you better like other human beings and understand them and be inclusive Um, I already said the thing about service. For me, public service is everything. So if you have that service ethos, that's incredibly important. Um, And you have to be brave. And I don't just mean physical bravery, because you will definitely need that. And I've needed it many times. You need moral courage. Whether you're dealing with a prime minister who's um, saying things that you think are wrong, do you have the guts to stand up and say that? whether you're dealing with the people you are working with who you believe are not doing what they should be doing, do you have the guts as a leader to um, deal with that? Some of the decisions we make, I talked about the covert policing we do, some of those decisions we make are massively intrusive into people's lives. Do you have the moral courage to know that you're doing the right thing before you take any action? These things are important. And the final thing I would say, and I was I was part of the team that um, researched met values. So integrity, professionalism, courage and compassion are the Met's values. And it's interesting, compassion is the one that the public voted for. The one thing, it was number 12 on our original list, by the way, that police officers have put down. They put it down there, but they put it at number 12. The public put it at number one. That's what they want. They want us to care. If you don't care about what you're doing every day, um, you shouldn't be a police officer. Uh, and my dad told me many, many years ago, and he was a very fine doctor indeed, the minute you stop caring, that's too late. You need to retire. If, you, if you're if you so desensitised to the kind of things you're dealing with that you no longer care, that is a warning signal for your mental health, and the fact is you've got to go.
0: Well, uh, Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu, recipient of the Queen's Police Medal, over the last hour and 20 minutes, been an absolute honour to speak, John, what's a, an incredible day, I think, for the country and a whole in the passing of Her of Majesty the Queen. Indeed. Uh, thank you ever so much for sharing your experiences, um, your views and insights into what is quite a remarkable career. And on behalf of my colleagues and all my listeners, we, we wish you all the best in whatever comes your way in a post-policing career. I know you're currently at the College of Policing, but I'm sure you have some exciting and fun things to do, more importantly. Uh, when you wrap up your time in the in the coming months ahead, but uh, thank you ever so much for today.
1: Well, my absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wint Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. The Protect and Serve podcast wishes to pause and remember the late Queen Elizabeth II who passed 24 hours prior to the recording of this episode with Assistant Commissioner Neil Basu. Her late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was one of the greatest leaders the world has ever known. She was the pillar on which modern Britain was built. She came to the throne at just 25 years of age following the passing of her father and at a time in which the country was emerging from the darkness of war in Europe. The United Kingdom is the great country it is today because of Queen Elizabeth II. The Commonwealth maintains the close relationship it does today because of Queen Elizabeth II. The Queen was dedicated to the Union of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Her words of wisdom during the most difficult periods of our nation's history gave us strength in the most testing times. More recently, during the darkest moments of the global pandemic, She gave us hope that we would meet again. She knew Britons would be as strong as any nation in getting through this period of great challenge. As a nation, we remember the pledge she made on her 21st birthday to dedicate her life to service. And that she did, inviting our most recent Prime Minister to form government only two days before her sad passing. We mourn the loss of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, but we now offer our loyal support to the King King Charles III, God Save the King.